This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com. I'm with Jim Callahan, Director of Asian Art at James G. Julia. How are you doing, Jim? All right. How's it going? Good, good. I want to talk today about uh, what has happened to the Asian market. We've seen the trends change drastically over the years. As a matter of fact, I used to go in houses all the time and leave Asian items in there. And today, everybody is out there looking for them. Uh, what do you uh, think, in general, is the reason this has happened? Well, one of one of the reasons it's happened is you know the antiques business in this in this country is barely a hundred years old, hmm. and it's running its course, and perhaps it'll continue for another few hundred years. Um, perhaps it won't. It might be just a historical abnormality. But they've had antique shops in China for a thousand years. Wow. Now, there's something I've said on this podcast a couple of times. My father used to say it. I say it as a joke, or I have said it as a joke, that the Chinese have been faking antiques for a thousand years. Is it true? Um, not faking antiques, but making them in earlier styles as a, a memory of greater times. I see. In, in, in that the, the material may not have been there. So they, they couldn't buy the originals. Mm-hmm. So make, they made things that looked like them. I see. In order to venerate the past. Mm-hmm. Well, how did a lot of these styles originate? Any ideas on that? How some of the styles originate? The, the styles originate basically out of the, the very origins of Chinese culture. Hmm. So, you know, there's a whole set of archetypes that the Chinese have that we don't have. Hmm. You know, we see a figure of a knight in armor on horseback killing a dragon. We know it's St. George. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they see a bat, and the word for bat is foo, right? And it's uh, uh, the same word means harmony. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they, they see a bat, it means harmony, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So that's why the motifs have, like, a, a fairly limited register mm-hmm. of things that they're using over and over and over again. Yeah, yeah. And has the market uh, gone kind of crazy lately um, because of the new wealth in China? Mostly, is that? I don't think I don't think it's actually gone crazy. I think it's beginning to realize prices that are associated with the rarity of these objects. I see. You know, like if if you would if if you were to look at a an, an exceedingly fine piece of 17th century furniture, it would command a huge amount of money in the United States. Mm-hmm. And it would be a very, very limited quantity. The same thing with the Chinese. Do you think the internet has changed the market in a way that it's allowing people in China to find objects all over the world? Yes, certainly it has. Mm-hmm. It's, it certainly has done that. Yeah. And are they trying to not repatriate, but are they trying to bring their items back to China in general? Yeah, I think they're trying They're trying to decorate and live in their version of what they would consider opulence. And opulence would be probably something from the Chenlong period between like 1735 and 1796 that was a, um, an apogee for Chinese culture. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they think that it's, that's a period of time where 
it was kind of consistently elegant, mm -hmm. and that's what they're going for. Now, I've seen, and we've actually talked about this, the Wong Wali pieces that are very rare are, are commanding huge money today. Very much so. And there was a piece that was estimated. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, there was a table I'm, that sold in New York. I'm not sure which auction house, but it was estimated 200, uh, 300,000 sold for 9.7 million. 9.7 million. Yeah. That is amazing. And when we talked about this, you said that there was perhaps another piece of furniture that had sold for more at one time? I think there has been, but I'm not certain about that. Yeah. So that's got to be right up there. Yeah. That's amazing. Oh, it's got to be. Yeah. It's got to be top five anyway. Yeah. And one of the things that's always probably not an easy subject to bring up, but um, there has been some controversy about a lot of Asian pieces not being paid for. That are bought. And one thing I've, I found out about that is that seems to be being carried to an extreme because it's industry-wide. It happens in all areas. Mm -hmm. And it's just happening with the, the Chinese area. And then I think the thing that, that makes it seem like a larger problem is it's on bigger ticket items. Sure. Yeah. And I think that the payment thing is not necessarily that they don't want to pay or can't pay, I think they have currency issues getting money outside of the country. Yes, I've, I've heard something about that. One of the things I also want to talk about is the rhino horn pieces. They're, they're having issues with that sometimes. You can sell them, sometimes you can't. What keeps changing with the laws with that? Um, it keeps changing because I think they want to, the, the Chinese particularly, want to prevent the sale of poached rhinoceros on items. Rightly so. They, they, you know, they very much want to. And they want a, a definitive statement on the age mm -hmm. of rhinoceros on objects. Yep. And when they get that definitive statement, then commonsensically, they're saying these objects were made two or three hundred years ago, mm -hmm. you know, when there were no shortage of rhinoceros anywhere mm -hmm. in the world. And these luxury objects kind of shouldn't be consigned to the dustbin of history just because of recent things. Right. But the recent material, it should be cracked down on and cracked down hard. Yes, yes. Uh, is, and there's, there's quite a problem with that? Um, there isn't because one of the things is it seems that the material is not necessarily being fabricated into objects it's just being used in the black market. Like aphrodisiac, is that right? Right, medicine something? kind of yeah. nonsense. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to talk before we move on any more about you know, particular items. How did you get involved in this interest in particular? And basically because in the antiques business, everybody knew about American things. Mm -hmm. And... Everybody knew how to overprice American things. <laughs> um, in the Asian market, the same people who very much understood American art had absolutely no vision on no concept of Asian art at all. Yep, that's me. Hmm. That's me. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm guilty of that. And uh, I just never had a real interest in learning. But now I have more of an interest just because there's so much attention drawn to it. Mm. You know, at this point, and not necessarily money. It's just that there's um, I now when I go into an antique show or something, I'm always looking at Asian pieces where I never did before. You know, I think that's what's changed. 
Yeah, well, you know, like, it was kind of short-sighted for Americans and Europeans not to be looking at the other two-thirds of the world. Right. <laughs> you know? So. Yeah. And you started really young in collecting? In yeah, general? yeah, yeah. Did my first antique show when I was like 11. 11 years old. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. I still have a witness of it. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. yeah. He was the promoter. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what has the Antiques Roadshow done for you? We see you on that all the time. Um, a lot of credibility yes. in the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of connections in the industry. Yeah. You know, and an enormous amount of people bringing material, you know, directly to me. Sure, sure. You and I have talked a little bit about that, and there's a massive amount of items that comes into these shows. How does that all get segregated and weeded out, so to speak? Well, what they do is they they have a group that basically triages the material when they come into the building, and then they give them a card that they believe represents where the object should be appraised. Mm-hmm. Then the people bring the object to us, and if it was incorrect, we just write the name of the department that they should go to and send them over mm-hmm. to those people. Because you know sometimes people don't necessarily want to know what something's worth. They want to know a little story about it or what it is. Yeah. And you're best sending them to the expert who can actually tell them that information. Rather than you say to them, yeah, it's late 19th century and it's $300. Right. They want more than that. Yes, I see. And that gives them the ability to go to those people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, how long have you been doing the Antiques Roadshow? I did not do the very first year. So it was the second year. So I think that's oh, really? wow. 17 years. Wow, that's amazing. And you've gone everywhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm sure you have a lot of interesting stories when it comes to what's happened at some of those shows. There are, and one of, the, one of the, the, the best ones about it is how few people are very disappointed. Really? With what you tell them. Uh-huh. You know, there, there seems to be a, an enormous amount of stories going on about what something is, mm-hmm. and they're actually happy to find out that those stories aren't true. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I've yeah. Heard, heard those stories many times. Yeah, yeah. you know, they, they have this um, this thing, you know, that they've been kind of taking care of an object because mm-hmm. some relative said how wonderful it was, and it is not. So they don't have to worry about it anymore. Anymore, yeah. And they're happy about that. One, one, one time in, um, in uh, Hot Springs, Arkansas, one of the appraisers saw a painting, and the person told them about this painting that, the father-in-law said that it was like a very, very valuable painting and it was wonderful. And he kept it in the house forever and he never liked it. So he brought it to the road show and he asked the, the appraisers, he said, what is it? And they said, it's really nothing. <laughs> and he said, you mean you could, I could throw it away? And they said, for all purposes, yeah, you could throw it away. <laughs> And as we were leaving the roadshow and going back to the hotel, it was in the dumpster. <laughs> That's great. That's a great story. Getting back to objects themselves. In a podcast like this, it's really hard to teach anyone anything because it's so short. It's not visual. It's audio. But if you were to tell a novice collector that had a fascination or a passion of Asian items, how would you tell them to start collecting? Uh-huh. Go to plenty of museums. Mm-hmm. 
buy lots of books. Yeah. You know, read lots of books. Mm-hmm. Um, make mistakes. Yes. Um, keep your mistakes and live with them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know. When you say mistakes, I understand what you mean. Like you're thinking of buying one thing and it ends up being something else. Usually you pay too much for it. Exactly. It's never the other way around. Right. And those are the things <laughs> you learn. Those are the things you learn from. That's right. That's your tuition. Yeah, and when it comes to the it is your tuition. That's a good way of putting it. Mm. And one thing about it is that the, the Chinese have paid their tuition and are mm-hmm. buying better and better things. With that in mind, do you see that the average Chinese collector, for instance, is refining all the time? Always. Always. Mm-hmm. Always refining. Now, let's talk quickly about this piece that you have taken in for auction, which I think is fascinating. It's an imperial piece. Can you it, talk about it? Yeah, that? it's an imperial seal for the plain white banner that's dated the third year of Chenlong, which mm-hmm. is 1738 39. Mm-hmm. And um, it's six and three quarter inches by six and three quarter inches by three inches in height. And it's a type of bronze that has you know, very, very high content of precious metals mixed in with it too. Mm. And then it's heavily, heavily gilt. And this thing is cast, carved, and chased. So it, it looks as though it's it's made out of pure gold. And it was made for the imperial family. It was made for the imperial family. Wow. So extremely rare. And it's not when when we first had the conversation on the phone and you said you took this piece in, I'm picturing this block of, you know, a seal, mostly the seals are like blocks of jade or whatever they are, but this is a, a cast piece with dragons, and what else on it? A dragons, clouds, and pearls, all imperial emblems. Oh, I see, yeah. And when you look at the casting, you can just see Very perfect fine casting, yeah. Yeah. Very fine casting. And what is that in the auction estimate at? Um, I believe it's in for... Twenty to thirty thousand, which really has little to do with what it's going to sell for. Yes, I, I want to talk to you a little bit about that because there's a psychology involved more in Asian pieces as far as auction estimates go than there are with, say, Americana, something like that. To get people really bidding on these items, the estimates have to be very conservative. One of the things about the, the difference is that by having very conservative, even extremely low estimates on things, you're making the statement that the object is for sale. Yes. It's it's not an object out there that's fishing for a buyer. Yes. It's mm-hmm. actually for sale. Mm-hmm. And then the the interesting thing too is when the auctions seem to have estimates that are representative of the value. Well, if they're representative of the value, why does 40 to 70% of it not sell? I can vouch for that because I was involved um, before I started working with James Julia. Um, I was involved with helping another auction house catalog, and we cataloged about 200 pieces of Asian and uh, had had someone come out and identify it and then we estimated it in the range and it all was to be sold but it still was not a very successful auction the estimates were in the range of what they actually should sell for but there was not a lot of participation a lot of pieces were bought in yeah they 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 want to know it's actually competitive yes they want to know that they're 
they're competing against themselves to buy a piece that they're not competing against to reserve to buy the piece. That's right. That's right. Now let's talk a little bit about the Korean screen. Now you know, you know pretty much Asian across the board. So this is a Korean piece, and I was here when it actually came in the door. Can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, the Korean screen came in. It was a very, very fine one, and um, I think I put six to 8,000 as the estimate on it. And this is, again, to create this fervor where people were actually involved in trying to buy it, because they know that if it was reserved, and it can't be under Massachusetts law, but if it was reserved for 10 times the low mm -hmm. estimate, it still would have been a bargain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And at the time when the person left, I said that this thing was going to sell between 300000 and a million dollars. I was here when right. you said that. Right. Yes. Uh -huh. And it sold for 600000 Which is totally amazing. You know what? I, I got to tell you, I'm looking at that piece and I can see, I saw the beauty of it. Um, the condition wasn't all that great, but I saw the beauty of it, but I, I would absolutely not know. I would think six to 8,000 was right if I saw that piece. If I walked into a shop and saw that at six to $8,000, not now, but then, I would walk right by it. Now I'd probably take pictures and send them to you. <laughs> yeah. And I would have bought it immediately. <laughs> Up from under me. <laughs> so someone can find you right here at James Julia, and I'll have the link yep, exactly. under this podcast. And thank you so much, Jim. Um, it's, it's always a pleasure talking with you and working with you, and thanks for being on the podcast. Even the same with you. All right. This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com.